Welcome to New City Church. This is Matt Freeman, and we are so thankful you are studying the Word of God with us. Jesus founded New City after our forever home, the New Jerusalem from Revelation 21. He wrote our mission statement to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride looking for Jesus' return. Let's lean completely on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us all things from 1 John 2.27. God is so eager to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. All right, we are, I guess we're going to keep with the theme of going three verses at a time here on Hebrews 11, but this will be good. So we've been, we've been taking this kind of verse by verse through Hebrews 11 because of the, the, just the richness and the depth of what the Lord has for us in the hall of faith. And, you know, it's really, it's neat today how the Lord highlights Sarah. And so we're going to talk a lot about Sarah. We talked last time, two weeks ago, about Abram and God, God what he did in his life going from Abram to Abraham. And today the Lord highlights Sarah, his wife. And what a, what a special woman in the Bible. So before we dive in, as we always should do before we open the Word of God, let's, let's go to prayer. Lord, I just thank you again so much for this time together. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit, your anointing would teach us everything out of the book of Hebrews. Everything that you want us to have in this day and age in which we live. Lord, we are so thankful that we get the privilege to gather together and to open your word. It is inexhaustible. And Lord, we pray that we, each of us, would have a burning hunger to leave this place and to study your word on our own and to sit with the author himself, to sit with you, Lord, every day and to draw closer to you and surrender our lives to you as a result. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So like we, like we always start off with in Hebrews, the, the guiding verse as we study the Bible, right, is 1 John 2, 27 and 28, but the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you, but as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie, and even as it hath taught you, Ye shall abide in him, and now little children abide in him, that when he shall appear to call us home at the rapture, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. And it's just a great reminder that as we're studying the word of God for all of us, and I probably badger this, uh, I, I beat this dead horse every single Sunday we're up here, but it's so critical. This was, this was the verse that started me on my journey in studying the Bible in 2011 and taking this to God. If you open God's word, you do not need another pastor, a commentary. You need no man to teach you, but the Holy Spirit will teach you everything. You just have to give him space and time to do it. And if you sit down and you write out every single question you have as you go and you take this as your guiding verse, I promise you it will revolutionize your life. It will change your walk with him, and he will teach you everything out of his word. And we're going to study some pretty cool things today about how one of my favorite verses in the Bible, Psalms 40, verse 7, is in the volume of the book, it is written of him, and written of me, Jesus says. 
in the volume of the book, it's written of me. And when you realize and you take this verse and you realize that Jesus is literally on every page of the Bible, it just brings it to life. And we're going to look at a really cool example of that today. But our outline through the book of Hebrews, we're nearing the end and the true and better response is faith started in chapter 10, verse 26, and goes through chapter 12. And then obviously the last chapter of Hebrews is chapter 13. So we've been taking this little by little as we go in chapter 11, the hall of faith, what a lot of people call the hall of faith, because you have all of this kind of not heavy theological stuff, but all this doctrinal stuff from the beginning of Hebrews through, through about the midpoint in chapter 10. And then because of that, what should our response be? Because Jesus is our high priest, because he is superior to the angels, because he disannulled the law, all of these things, our response should be faith. And so in chapter 11, this is what we've covered so far week by week. We started with one verse, uh, what is faith, the definition of faith, Hebrews 11.1. We then went into a deep dive into quantum physics and quantum mechanics and what's going on in the other dimensions that we don't have access to right now in Hebrews 11, verses 2 through 3. Through faith, the worlds were framed. Remember, those were that wasn't cosmos. The cosmos is in the universe. That was the different Greek word in worlds for time domains. And so we really dove deep into that and what's going on there. Then we went into the Lord starts going through great people in the Bible. The mark of faith with Abel and Enoch in Hebrews 11, verses 4 and 5. The faith is pleasing in Hebrews 11, 6 and 7 with Noah. By faith you are called in verses 8 through 10 with Abram and God changing his name to Abraham. And then today being persuaded by faith with Sarah and the call to press on in Hebrews 11, verses 11 through 13. So it's taken us you know, six different lessons to get through 13 verses, but I don't know, we're kind of just going as the Holy Spirit leads and however, however deep he wants us to keep going, that's what we're going to do. So if, like I mentioned, from the beginning of Hebrews all the way through Hebrews 10, 18, the Holy Spirit was dealing with these heavy issues, right? The law, Jesus fulfilled the law. He created the angels and is the son of God. The Levitical priesthood is, has been disannulled and is inferior to the Melchizedekian priesthood that was a foreshadowing of Jesus. Remember Melchizedek from Genesis 14, Abram brought tithes and offerings to him. And so the Lord uses that as an example of how if Levi was in the loins of Abram at that time, then obviously Levi is inferior to the priest Melchizedek. And as a result, since Jesus is our high priest after Melchizedek, then he is superior to the law and the Levitical priesthood. It's a very rabbinical line of thinking and logic that the Jews connect with. But remember, Hebrews is written in that peculiar time between Jesus being crucified, buried, resurrected, and ascended to when the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. It's written in between that, about a 38-year period where the temple was still standing, but yet the church had been formed. And so it's written to believers, all of us in this room as believers, that this book is written to us and it specifically is calling out the Jews at that time that were still practicing the Levitical sacrifices and the priesthood after Jesus had paid the price. 
and disannulled all of that. And so it's in a, it's in a weird spot in time that's perfect then and perfect for us today in terms of our responsibility as a believer in the church because the whole book is written around these five warnings. The five warnings in the book of Hebrews, the danger of drifting, the danger of hardening the heart, the danger of failing to mature, the danger of willful sin. We've covered those four so far. The last one in chapter 12 is the danger of refusing. And so it starts small, right? Each of those five warnings builds upon the previous one. It starts by drifting, and you let your grip on Jesus start to slip, and you start to drift away just little by little. And through that, your heart starts to harden, then you fail to mature, then you start to commit willful sin, and then eventually you refuse God altogether and you become an apostate. So remember, apostasy literally means just to turn away from, kind of like repentance, but not in a good way. It's the, it's the, the inverse of that. So repentance, all that means is to turn away from something bad. Apostatizing is to turn away from something else. It could be good or bad. In, in this case, in, a, in most of the Bible, it's used as a negative in terms of turning away from God. And that, that can be a believer or a non-believer can both apostatize. And the Bible kind of makes that distinction throughout. But like I mentioned, each warning builds upon the previous one. And we've covered four of those so far. But the point is that the Lord is giving us these warnings because he is so desperate for such a deep relationship with every one of us. And he wants you as a born-again child of the king to take your relationship with him just as serious and to get serious about spending time with him, open the word of God. We're going to talk about the end, how it's the only way to build your faith. We're going to dive into what Sarah was persuaded by in these couple of verses here. But God gives us this outline because he is so desperate for you and I. He is a jealous God and jealous for your affection, not jealous like in a negative way as in don't coveting, but he is so desperate for you and I. And in Revelation 3.16, he talks a lot about this. Jesus talks about this, about the lukewarm believers, the lukewarm ones that they're not hot or cold. See, hot or cold water is medicinal and refreshing. They both have a great purpose. Lukewarm water is kind of like, eh, I could kind of do without that. It's, there's not really much you get from it. But that's why Jesus is using that example in the church of Laodicea. And there were literally was a hot spring and a cold spring that met in Laodicea. And the water congealed and became lukewarm. It mixed together and became lukewarm. But Jesus is longing for that relationship in us because God is longing for that because a kingdom is at hand. And we're going to talk about this unshakable kingdom a little bit at the end. And especially as we get into Hebrews chapter 12, as Jesus is going to set up the millennium. Because what is at stake for you and I is not our salvation. If you are born again, you can never be unborn. And so what is at stake for us? What's at stake for us is our place in that kingdom. And God talks a lot about the different rewards throughout the Bible for faithful service. So just to recap, I want to read back through Hebrews 11, 1 through 13, then we'll break down these last three verses, kind of verse by verse here. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. 
And that is the definition of faith. It's amazing how, how many people have been in, you know, Christians most of their lives. And, and if you asked a thousand of them, write down the definition of faith, you would get maybe 998 different answers. But it, the Bible defines it. It's the substance of things hoped for. That is Jesus. He is the substance of all that we hope for and the evidence of things not seen. For by it, the elders obtained a good report. Through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. That's time domains in the Greek, that word worlds. So that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. And that's that quantum physics statement by God that we spent a whole week diving into. It's amazing. Go back and listen to that if you, if you missed that message. But as a result of all of this, our response should be walking by faith through this world. By the word of God, we too should build our faith so that we can overcome, press on, and receive a good report, just like the, the great people of the Bible he goes through here in chapter 11. Look at Romans 8, 16 through 17. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. Remember in the Bible, God says Christ is the heir of all things. And so you and I, in the church age, we have such a special relationship because we are joint heirs with Christ in the heavens, in the kingdom that is to come. Remember Israel, the entire inheritance for Israel is tied to the earth. Our inheritance is tied to heaven, is the church. And so we have such a special relationship. And as a result, we should take our walk with him even more serious. All of Israel's promises are tied to the land to the, the multitudes of the earth, the offspring of Abram, etc. Okay, and joint heirs with Christ, and then notice the conditional. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. So it's a call from the Lord, right, to press on. By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it, he being dead, yet speaketh. And by faith, Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him. That's raptured. He, he had caught him up. For before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Remember we, when we dove deep into Enoch, the same three groups of people before the flood of Noah exist before the tribulation that is to come. There's those that are caught up beforehand. That's Enoch in the Old Testament. Those preserved through the flood, Noah and his seven family members, the eight people, and then those that perished in the flood. Same three groups of people in the seven-year tribulation, those that are raptured prior to, those preserved during, and then those that per perish during the tribulation. Exact same three groups. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. So notice in that verse, in verse 6, without faith, it is impossible. God is, God is not saying it's difficult, it's a little hard to achieve. Uh, if you work hard enough with works, you can overcome this problem. He is saying it is impossible to please God without faith. And at the end of the message, like we always close, the trinity of faith, if it's impossible to please him, without faith, then we need to know how to go get it. And that's Romans 
10.17, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. So you have the call to be in the word on your own to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder. Notice that term, that phrase, a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. That reward is not just in this life, but in the life to come. And we're going to have, we're going to talk a lot about being persuaded by faith because of what you and I have on the other side of this life. This little blip of a miracle we call life that doesn't last that long. By faith, Noah being warned of of God, of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is by faith. Notice because of his obedience, he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness. That's a call for you and I. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed and he went out not knowing whither he went. You know, it's interesting that his name was not Abraham at the time of his call, but that is how God sees him now. Remember, we talked a lot about his name was Abram, and when God renamed him Abraham, he just entered the breath of God, the hey in the Hebrew, it's our letter H, but in Hebrew, it's the breath of God. He entered that in the middle of him, and that's why he changed his name from Abram to Abraham. Same with Sarai to Sarah. By faith, he sojourned in the land of promise as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which, ha- which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. I always love that because you don't learn that in the Old Testament, that Abraham wandered around looking for that new city that is our promised home, the new Jerusalem. Abraham, you don't learn that in the Old Testament, but Abraham had received from God a promise of a future city, and he walked around looking for it. Through faith also, so here's where our study today picks up. Through faith also, Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore sprang there even of one and him as good as dead, so many as the stars of the sky in multitude, and as the sand which is by the seashore innumerable. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Okay, so let's break these down kind of verse by verse here, starting in verse 11. So through faith also Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age because she judged him faithful who had promised. Now her original name, Sarai, appears 17 times in the Old Testament. And in Hebrew, it literally means princess. So Sarai, the princess. Her name, Sarah, after God, inserts the breath of God, the H, into her name, which is what the Lord is calling her here in the New Testament. It's just in our English translation, the H is left off in the writing. But Sarah appears 37 times in the Old Testament. In Hebrew, it means noble woman. 
So she went from a princess to a noble woman, almost like a princess. She was an heir to a kingdom and a promise to a queen. So she was, by the breath of God, inserting in her life, her relationship deepened and her status with him increased. So she went from a princess to a queen. Just think about that. Sarah, now the new you should always overshadow the former self. And I think that is no coincidence that her name, after God changes her name, appears more than twice of her original self. Now she was, she was obedient in her original self, but she had to be persuaded by faith to press on to receive an inheritance through Isaac. And we're going to look at that in detail. But Sarah has promised a son in whom all nations would be blessed. And we know that through Isaac, ultimately, the Messiah had to be born. See, one of the things you'll, you'll realize, too, as you're studying the Bible, it starts, the promise of the virgin birth starts in Genesis 3.15, that thy seed, speaking to the woman, thy seed, the seed of the woman, will crush the head of the, of the serpent, the seed of the serpent. And the seed's not in the woman. So it's predicted, the virgin birth is predicted all the way back in Genesis 3.15, and through that, so from that point on, Satan, as God reveals little by little his plan for redemption of man, God, Satan has to attack whatever's revealed, which is why when God declares the seed of the woman, Satan then declares war on all mankind. Well, then it's not just all of man, it's through Abraham, it's through Abram. And so the attack on Abram comes. Well, then it's not through, um, it's through Isaac and then Jacob, and then of the 12 tribes, remember, he hones in on Judah. It's going to come through the line of David. So the attack focuses in on David. And that's why Pharaoh tried to kill all the young boys in Egypt. That's why Herod, when you get all, fast forward all the way to the New Testament, Herod declares, kill all the boys two years and younger. Just kill them. He, Satan's trying to wipe out the Messiah the whole time. It's that attack on his line and so when you look at what happens with Isaac, it's just incredible that we know the Messiah had to come through him, and yet God tests Abraham's faith to go and kill him. And we're going to study that in detail here in a little bit in Genesis 24, but it's incredible. The, if you study the Bible, you can almost look at it as an attack, a counter, and an attack, and a counterattack from God, between God and Satan, a move and a counter move the whole step of the way through the word of God, ultimately culminating at the cross. That's what happened. So moving on to, um, Aaron, can you go forward one? Yeah, Genesis 17. So here's where Sarah shares, shows up the first time. Genesis 17, verse 15. And God said unto Abraham, As for Sarai thy wife, thou shalt not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall her name be. See, God wanted the blessing to come through the spiritual head of the family, which was Abraham. Despite it being the Lord's decree, there's an important lesson here for the husbands. God changes her name through Abraham. And the reason why is because of how God structures the family unit, right? In his, as Chris likes to say, in God's economy and the family, the husband, the father, the spiritual head of the household, and so God is declaring this blessing through Abraham of Sarah's name change. 
and I will bless her and give thee a son also of her. Remember, he had Ishmael by this point. I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall be of her. Then Abraham fell upon his face. He probably was rolling on the floor and laughed and said in his heart, shall a child be born unto him that is a hundred years old? And shall Sarah that is 90 years old bear? So notice that in this verse though, that Abraham never called her Sarai again, despite laughing about the promise, right? He's rolling on the floor laughing, but he never calls her Sarai again. He calls her Sarah. So he's accepting the blessing from God, but he's laughing at the call on her life. And Abraham said unto God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. See, he was trying to get the blessing to come through Ishmael, not through Isaac, because he thought it'd be impossible for God to do this. And God said, Sarah, thy wife shall bear thee a son indeed, and thou shalt call his name Isaac, which his name literally means laughter or laughs, one who laughs. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his seed after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard thee. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. Twelve princes shall he beget, and I will make him a great nation. Now, you could go down a deep rabbit trail of studying the descendants of Ishmael. You know, they're basically the Muslim nations that surround Israel, and surely they are great nations. They are great people. There's a multitude of them. Uh, but it starts there, that tension between Israel and the Muslim nations surrounding them. It starts there, all the way back with Abraham and Ishmael. It starts there. But my covenant will I establish with Isaac, which Sarah shall, be, shall bear unto thee at this set time in the next year. And he left off talking with him, and God went up from Abraham it's amazing that the Lord just comes down and he's talking with Abraham. He's communing with him. And as I mentioned, the name Isaac means one who laughs or laughter because Abraham was laughing at the, the fact that his 90-year-old wife was going to conceive a child and she's been barren her entire existence. You know, how is the Lord going to do this? And Abraham is actually the one that laughs first. Notice that. It's not Sarah. Remember, Sarah laughs and then denies it to the Lord before Sodom and Gomorrah. But the Bible doesn't give us clarity on this, but it's, there's a principle there that Abraham was the one who laughed at God's promise. And so how serious did his wife take it? And there's a principle for all of us husbands and fathers in the room and those watching here that if you are the spiritual head of your household and God gives you a promise, take it serious because your family is going to take it only as serious as you take it. And he said, I will certainly return unto thee according to the time of life. This is Genesis, starting in Genesis 18, verse 10. And lo, Sarah, thy wife, shall have a son. And Sarah heard it in the tent door. So we're fast forwarding to Sodom and Gomorrah here, which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old and well-stricken in age, and it ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. Therefore Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I am waxed old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord, being old also? And the Lord said unto Abraham, Wherefore did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I have surety bear of a child which am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? 
at the time appointed, I will return unto thee according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. And then Sarah denied, saying, I laughed not, for she was afraid. And, when he, and he said, Nay, but thou didst laugh. It's, it's incredible, this whole discourse between, remember, it's Jesus and two angels who come down to Abraham's tent. They're overlooking Sodom and Gomorrah. They commune a non-kosher meal with Abram, as we looked at two weeks ago. Uh, remember, Abram took a, a calf and then the milk of the mother also and served a meal, which is a non-kosher meal. You can really get uh, modern-day Jews that do not believe in Jesus really wrapped around the axle if you shared that with them. They, they just kind of, it's almost like a vapor lock. They don't know what to do with it. So, <laughs> but they, they commune, they dine, and then God re-utters re the promise to Abraham. And I love that Sarah's laughing in her heart sitting there but then the Lord calls her out on it and she denies it. And he knows, he knows how serious we take the call. And so Sarah had, as a godly wife and a godly woman, an incredible call on her life. And you don't learn, I mean, obviously Isaac's born and they go throughout life and you learn a lot about Isaac. You don't learn much about Sarah after this point. And, but I love how God calls her out in 1 Peter chapter 3 as an example of a godly woman. And she's the only woman, he, in all these passages, she's the only one that he calls out by name. And it's incredible. So let's look at this. In 1 Peter 3, starting in verse 1, Likewise, ye wives, being in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives. See, a godly wife simply living for Christ can restore a husband gone astray. And that's the principle God is setting here in 1 Peter 3 verse 1. Be in subjection to your own husbands that if any obey, if the any is are the men, are the husbands. If any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives. It's amazing how many families are restored around the world and in our community simply by godly women committing to prayer and studying the Bible and praying on behalf of their husbands. Without, without any conversation, without coming to them and, and berating them, but just praying and seeking God and living out that testimony, husbands turn to the Lord. It's amazing how God sets that principle. While they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear, so as the husbands are beholding the godly wives, their chaste conversation coupled with the fear of God. See, that's, that's a healthy conversation. When you have a conversation that is coupled with the fear of God, you don't rail accusations, you don't belittle people, you speak life and love from your tongue to those around you, and you lift up and encourage the body of Christ. That is a chaste conversation coupled with fear, because by our words, we will be judged. You know, fortunately, uh, there's a principle there in God's word that by our, our words, we will be judged whose adorning, these are, this is the godly women still, whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of 
Plateating, now that, I had to look up that word actually in the Greek. It means the braiding or adorning your hair, braiding your hair, the hair and of wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel. So what God is saying, you're adorning. He's saying when you as a godly wife are adorning yourself, don't worry about the appearance, but let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. What an incredible call by God that you are not as a godly woman, you have a call on your life to adorn yourself with the hidden man of the heart. Now, who could that be? It's Jesus the hidden man of the heart. When you as a godly woman walk and adorn yourself with Christ and you are walking in meekness, having chaste conversation coupled with fear, studying the word of God, it is incredible how families are radically changed by a godly woman. And, you know, there are, there are family members on um, I don't think he would mind me sharing this, but on Randy's side of the family, you know, distant, distant family members that are, they were saved simply by a praying grandmother. You know, you have power, the godly women, for all of you moms and wives in this room, you have spiritual authority in your family to be on your knees before God, praying on their behalf, praying for your husbands, walking in meekness and humbly with the Lord, and God will work wonders through your family when a woman is in, in subjection to Jesus, into the hidden man of the heart. Okay, so adorn yourself with the hidden man of the heart, which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit. In 1 Peter 3, 6, even as Sarah, so here's where God connects it to Sarah. He's using Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are. So if you're in Christ today, and you're listening to this, or you're in this room, and you are a woman, you're a daughter of Sarah, just like the men in this room are sons of Abraham. That's incredible. Calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are, as long as ye do well, and are not afraid with any amazement. Likewise, okay, the Lord's shifting to the husband's. Uh, so all of you men in the room, you don't get, you don't get away scot-free here. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel. See, there's a principle here too, the weaker vessel. What, what the Lord is saying, it's not weak as in strength, uh, spiritual strength or anything like that. It's the God set the order of the family that the husband is to be the spiritual head of the household and that the woman, see, when you go all the way back to Adam and Eve, Eve was deceived, Adam was not. Now, why was she deceived? And you learn that in the New Testament. She was deceived because the spirit that, the, that Adam had, the word of God, he did not properly teach his wife to lead her. And so she was deceived because what did God say? God told Adam, you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the serpent comes and says, 
hath God, yea, hath God said you shall not eat of or touch the tree? And Eve's like, oh yeah, that's, that's what God said. He said, she says, she quotes that back to him. He said, don't touch it. And that's not what God said. God said, don't eat of it. He never said anything about touching it. And yet, so Eve was deceived and she fell and then Adam willfully joins her place. So husbands, you have a spiritual responsibility to be leading your family in a godly way, praying for your wife, studying the word of God together, praying over your children, and being the stronger vessel to take on the attacks in the spiritual world coming upon all of us, frankly. Dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together, so you and your spouse as heirs together, of the grace of life that your prayers be not hindered. So it's amazing when a husband and wife are wholly submitted to God, both of them surrendered to Christ, that what the prayers of a godly couple can accomplish. Holy surrendered, your prayers be not hindered, which means there's something you can be doing that is hindering your prayers. And so that your prayers be not hindered. Now, what does that look like? Well, it looks like you need to be in the word of God together. You need to be studying and doing prayer time together as a family, if you can, if with your kids, start pouring into them. And it doesn't have to be you know, hours upon hours. Maybe it builds up to that at some point. But just take your walk with the Lord serious together. It's important. It's really important. The Lord uses Sarah as the only example in those passages of how to adorn yourselves as godly women. So you know Sarah also holds a special place in the Lord's heart because she's the first person in the Bible whose burial is documented. And if you're not familiar with the culture in the Middle East, burial is taken very, very serious in the Middle East. And I loved that she was the first person that God documents her burial, he or her. (laughs) And that's just incredible. So if you know how, how God holds that in honoring the life of someone at the burial, the fact that he chooses Sarah as the first person in the Bible who's called out that her burial is documented, that is so special by God. And it's in Genesis 23, 1 through 4 here. And Sarah was 107, 127 years old, 107 and 20 years old. These were the years of the life of Sarah, and Sarah died in Kirjath Arba, I'm going to butcher that word, the same as Hebron in the land of Canaan. And Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham stood up from before his dead and spake unto the sons of Heth, saying, I am a stranger and a sojourner with you. Give me a possession of a burying place with you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And so Sarah is actually buried in verse 19 after Abraham buys the field and the cave. Remember, he has that whole negotiation. But again, just to close out the responsibility of godly husbands, you know, men, your family will typically go by the way which you lead. And so 2 Chronicles 29, look at verses 8 and 9. Wherefore, the wrath of the Lord was upon Judah and Jerusalem, and he hath delivered them to trouble and to astonishment and to hissing, as ye see with your eyes, for lo, our father have fallen by the sword, our fathers have fallen by the sword, and our sons and our daughters and our wives are in captivity for this. Now, you see this a lot in the Old Testament. Now, 
keep in mind a lot of the Old Testament is a physical representation of the spiritual war that we fight today in the church. Uh, there's a lot of crossover and typology there. But notice in 2 Chronicles 29, our fathers have fallen by the sword. And as a result, our sons and our daughters and our wives, so the families, are in captivity for this. See, the same thing happens today. When husbands are weak in their faith or not in the word of God, not living right with God, you can, your family can be in captivity for that. And not captivity in, in a, obviously in a prison, like what's, what the Lord's talking about in the Old Testament here, but in a, in a spiritual place that is almost being captive because the husband is not rightfully leading them in liberty and freedom in Christ. And you see this again in number 16. Now, I just picked two examples out of the Old Testament, and there's, they're all over the place. But if you study the Old Testament, pay attention to how often something bad happening is tied to the, the rejection of the men the, re, the men rejecting the Lord. In number 16, remember Korah? Korah and, his, and these other men in the camp in the wilderness led a rebellion against God's anointed Moses and Aaron. And it came to pass, as he had made an end of speaking all these words, that the ground clave asunder that was under them, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed them up, and their houses and all the men that appertained unto Korah, and all their goods they and all that appertained to them went down alive into the pit. Now, when you study the bottomless pit in the Bible, it's called Abraham's bosom in one spot. And I think that's Luke 16, if I'm remembering right, with the, the rich man and Lazarus. But Abraham's bosom, it's at the center of the earth. There's a good side and a bad side. It is cleared out now that Jesus has been resurrected since he had to fulfill the feast of the first fruits. And then you see that detail in Matthew that many were resurrected and walked into Jerusalem, and then they all go up to heaven. That's him clearing out Abraham's bosom on the good side. But there's a giant chasm in the center of the earth that's talked about in Luke 16. It's a very physical place. Anywhere you read going down to the bottomless pit, it's always down. It's, always, it's directionally down. There's only one place in the universe that can be bottomless. It's where every direction is up. And that would be the center of a, of a globe. So if you're at the center of a sphere, every direction is up. That's why the Lord uses bottomless. There is no bottom. There's only one way to go, and it's up. And you see the rich man in Luke 16 is tormented there. Okay, that's the temporary holding place for those that have rejected God since Adam and Eve right now. And that will be, that will be corrected when Jesus returns in Revelation 19, the tribulation, the millennium, then the dead are resurrected, and the lake of fire is then, but that's not yet. So Korah and, his, and the people go down into the pit. Now, they were probably saved because most of the people in the wilderness, uh, the Lord talks about how everyone that was delivered out of Egypt was saved. It doesn't say if there were any in the future that weren't. So, you know, is Korah saved or not saved? It's not, not quite sure, but there was a judgment on he, he and his families for rejecting God. That's the point in going against the anointing, the anointing of Moses and Aaron. So keep that in mind that his, their households went with them. And the principle for you and I, if you're a man or a husband and a father, is that your family will go as you go. That's the principle in that. 
Hebrews 11, verse 12, therefore sprang there even of one and him as good as dead, so many as the stars of the sky in multitude and as the sand which is by the seashore innumerable. So the Holy Spirit's using a pun here. So out of Sarah, therefore sprang there even of one and in and him as good as dead. When was Isaac as good as dead? Right, when the Lord calls Abraham to go offer Isaac in Genesis 24. So out of Abraham, there did spring one who was as good as dead. Remember, uh, but Abraham himself was also as good as dead in terms of his age. That's why the Holy Spirit's using a pun. But Abraham's offering of Isaac, it's one of the more significant events in the entire Old Testament because it foreshadows the Lord sacrificing his own son thousands of years later. So in the Hebrew, the offering of Isaac is called the Akidah. It literally means, Akidah in the Hebrew means binding. So remember when Isaac goes up, and we're going to look at these passages in a minute, but when he goes up and his hands are bound, thus referring to Abraham binding Isaac, that's why the Hebrews refer to that event in that way. So this is all chronicled in Genesis 22. And he said, take now thy son, this is God speaking to Abraham, Thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains which I will tell thee of. So notice that God is calling Isaac his only son. We already mentioned Abraham had Ishmael. So why is God calling? In God's eyes, Isaac is the only son because he's the son of the promise by whom the Messiah would come. Ishmael was, although he was blessed, he was illegitimate in that way. In verse 4, then on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes. Now the third day, the third day is always the time period from death to life in the Bible. Obviously, Jesus in the tomb, three days, right? Jonah in the belly of the well for three days. He was dead for three days. Anywhere you see three, look for that period of being from death to life. Now, when God told Abram, Abraham to go sacrifice Isaac, he went the very next morning. From Abraham's perspective, Isaac was dead for three days because it was a three-day journey to Mount Moriah, which is north of Jerusalem. And so in Abraham's eyes, he was dead, just like the father with Jesus, he was dead for three days. So the typology is starting. This whole event it foreshadows God offering Jesus. Just keep that in mind as we're reading this. Abraham in the type of the father, Isaac in the type of the son, and then Eliezer, Abraham's servant, as a type of the Holy Spirit. We'll look at that. On the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes. And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the donkey. I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. So notice that Abraham tells them that they will come back but he's on his way to sacrifice Isaac. See, Abraham knew right then that there was an issue at stake, that if the Messiah was to come through Isaac, then he has to be resurrected. He can't go kill him because then God has a problem. Either he's going to stop the death or the Lord's going to resurrect him right there on Mount Moriah. And either, either way, Abraham was good with it because he was being obedient to God. But notice he tells them, I and the lad will come back. And Abraham took the, word, the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac, his son. 
So notice Isaac's carrying the wood for the sacrifice on his back, just like Jesus carrying the cross, same thing. And Abraham said, my son, God will provide himself. So if you skip down to verse eight, remember Isaac's asking, where's the sacrifice though, God? And Abraham says, my son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. Now notice what he is saying. God will provide who? Himself. God will provide himself as the offering. That's Jesus. He's providing himself. So even in the language the Holy Spirit's using. So when you look at this map, this, it's a topology map of Mount Moriah. So you've got uh, Salem or Jerusalem from Melchizedek there at the bottom. You go north and it's, this, it's kind of this ridgeback system that they're hiking and you get to the threshing floor of Aruna from the Old Testament. You keep going north to the top of Mount Moriah, and that's most likely where Isaac and Abraham went to make the sacrifice at the peak, the peak of Mount Moriah. Now, if you zoom in on the map, if you zoom in, go to the next slide, Aaron. Uh, the threshing floor of Aruna there, you get to the peak. That is what we call today Golgotha. That's where Jesus was crucified. This very same spot, thousands of years later, where Abraham offered Isaac, another father offered his son once and for everyone, the same spot. And if you actually look into the height of it above sea level, it's 777 meters above sea level, which is incredible. God's number, three sevens. Now, if you look at it today, I think there has been, been some erosion over the 2,000 years. Uh, I think if you looked it up today, they say it's 773 meters or something like that. But it's the very same spot. Now, when you, that's just a hint of the word of God, as I mentioned in Psalms 40, verse 7, that in the volume of the book, it's written of me, says Jesus. So when you're reading these stories in the Old Testament, don't look at them as some ancient story that has no relevance to us today. Because every single one of these stories somehow ties to and speaks of Jesus. So after the substitute ram, Isaac does not show up in the text for a while. He's hidden. He's like put aside. And Abraham, a type of the father, makes a marriage for his son. That's from Matthew 22, verse 2. The unnamed servant, a type of the Holy Spirit, who does not speak of himself, but takes the things of the bridegroom, the things of Isaac, to win the bride. Remember Eliezer, he's unnamed in the Old Testament. You have to go back a few chapters. But he goes to the people and finds Rebekah. And he brings all the wealth of Isaac's household and offers to Rebekah as, a, as an, basically a purchase price or a gift to the bride, to adorn the bride. That's us. We, the Holy Spirit is giving us everything of Jesus's kingdom as a price for the bride. He will guide you in John 16, 13. He will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself. That's the Holy Spirit. And Eliezer in the Old Testament literally means comforter. So it's the same thing. Remember Jesus said, I must leave so the comforter can come. The unnamed servant, a type of the Holy Spirit, enriches the bride with the bridegroom's gifts. They're the gifts of the Spirit. But who do they emulate? They all emulate Jesus. Remember you and I, if you study the gifts of the Spirit in the New Testament, there's never an all-inclusive list. There's never a list or a word that says you can only have one of them. You have something that's been given and endowed in you by God. 
And as you grow closer to Jesus, you may grow in areas you had no idea you had a gifting for. And all of the goods of the servant's master were in his hand. That's in Genesis 24, 10, representing the sufficiency and provision of joining the bridegroom's family, including the 10 camels. Remember, Eliezer takes 10 camels, which align with the 10 virgins in Matthew 25, verse 1, that come forth to meet the bridegroom. So there's a tie there. Additional, some additional parallels. The servant brings the bride to the meeting with the bridegroom. Okay, that's 1 Thessalonians 4, the rapture. We're going to meet the bridegroom. We're going to be ushered up by the servant and ushered in by angels. Rebecca, a type of the church, represents the ecclesia, the called out bride of Christ. The bride, even though not having seen Isaac, is a type of the bridegroom, loves him through the testimony of the unnamed servant. And so like you and I, we haven't seen Jesus yet, but we love him because of the testimony from the Holy Spirit. That's in 1 Peter 1.8, by the way. Isaac, a type of the bridegroom, goes out to meet and receive his bride. And that's, that parallels 1 Thessalonians 4 when Jesus himself descends with a shout and we meet them. Remember, the son had to leave for the comforter to be given. And that's in John 16.7. And the opposite is also true, that the comforter must be removed for Jesus to return. So for Jesus to give the Holy Spirit, he had to leave. He tells them that in John 16. But for his return, the Holy Spirit must leave. That's why the church has to be raptured. Then we come back with him in Revelation 19. The sufficiency of God's provision for his bride is all in Matthew 6, Matthew 7, 9. And yes, uh, there is a play on words because the Lord, because only he could provide the stone. So when you read in Matthew 7, of whom when your sons ask a bread, will he give him a stone? God's using that as a, as a play on words because the stone, obviously the stone the builders rejected is Jesus. He's the stone, the rock, all through the Bible. Okay, the last verse here in verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. So all of these great people of the Bible that we went through, they all died in complete faith, knowing that they had to be resurrected to receive God's promise. Abraham never saw the extent of the land grant from Genesis 15 in his lifetime. But God unconditionally promised it to him. He has to be resurrected to receive it. And the Old Testament saints get their resurrected bodies when Jesus steps foot back on the earth. We're going to look at that, I think, next time. Um, that's in Daniel and Job. But by faith, they could see what would eventually come to pass. And so they were persuaded to keep pressing on. And you too, you and I, we must confess that we are a stranger and pilgrim on the earth because your home, the New Jerusalem, that new city which Jesus has promised in John 14 is on the other side of this for you and I. So we, by faith, we have got to be persuaded to press on because Jesus is going to present a clean and spotless church to the Father, an unashamed bride. You know, I'm, I'm still... Um, 
I always just get so excited every time I, I look at this up here, but this, this mission statement that God wrote, that Jesus wrote two and a half years ago before he founded the church, to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride for Jesus' return. That fostering and strengthening is obviously to take in his people that were scattered astray and to give them and equip them with the word of God. That's how his people are strengthened. The growth is then in the individual by discipleship and studying God's word and walking in total liberty and freedom. And you get to be a part, when you do that, you are a part of this spotless bride that Jesus is going to present to the Father from Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. That's how you and I are cleansed and sanctified. Remember the three steps of salvation, justification in the Bible, you are, you are forgiven, you are removed from the penalty of sin once and for all. Jesus paid the price, you can't add anything to it, you can't take anything away from it. Once you are saved, you are removed from that penalty of sin for eternity. Then you start the sanctification process where you are on a walk, surrendering your entire life to Christ, uprooting sin in your life, studying the word of God, and growing in your faith. And that's being washed by the water of the word continually. And when you do that then at the rapture, when you and I get our glorified, resurrected bodies, the third tense of salvation in the Bible is glorification where you are removed from the very presence of sin once and for all. And sanctification, you're removed from the power of sin. So removal from the penalty, the power, and then the presence of sin. That's our walk with our king, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle. That word in the Greek, spot, is a moral blemish, the word wrinkle, think about it, are you folding to the world? That's the question. Are you bowing a knee to Jesus or to what the world system would tell you to value? And there, there's a big difference because we are co-heirs with Christ. We read that verse at the beginning, but if so be that we suffer with him. So we too will be resurrected to an inheritance and our inheritance is in Christ I love that it is interdimensional. You, you have no, you can't even imagine when you enter the other side of this and you have access to those other six and a half dimensions that quantum physics proves are there but we can't access, that the Bible has proved all along. You have no idea what your inheritance and our inheritance is going to be like. It will be completely unfathomable. You will spend an eternity exploring it. You will never be bored You'll never run out of things to do. You'll never be lacking of joy. You'll never be lacking of something to do in service to our king. And that question, the question of what that looks like for you and I is, how do you live right now? That's the question. So will you move in exactly what God tells you to do without getting full revelation? Remember two weeks ago when we studied Abram, and the revelation from God came little by little First, go to this land, your, your offspring will inherit it. inherit it. He went to the land having no promise that he would have anything to do with it. Then it's not just your offspring, but your offspring will be innumerable. They'll still inherit it. Then finally God says, okay, you're going to have a place in it. Then it's not just this land you're in, but the land from the river Nile to the river Euphrates. 
And so little by little, God revealed Abraham's call and his promise because he was obedient. He walked in obedience. And everything that God, that you need for this call, God will provide. So as we close out today's message with, like we always like to do, a, a call to action for God's church, you know, it is, it is time to rise up and get serious about your relationship with the Lord. It is that time because if you look at everything going on globally, you know, you don't see it as much right here in Oklahoma, in Oklahoma City. But if you look broader at the modern headlines, at daily headlines of all around the world, you can see the rise of the beast system getting set. Okay, it's not the Antichrist system yet. The church is still here. We've got to be raptured. Uh, and don't look for Antichrist. Look for Jesus Christ because he's going to call and take us home. And that's who your focus should be on. But as you see the stage setting, you know, it's kind of like one of my, I've used this before here, but one of my favorite, my favorite Bible teachers used to always say, he died four years ago, but he always said, when you see Christmas decorations in the store, you know, Thanksgiving's right around the corner. And that's kind of what the, the application of today, right? When you look around the world and you see what's going on, you can see the stage setting for that beast system that the devil, the Antichrist, spirit of Antichrist, the New Testament talks about is working in lawlessness today, tried to capture the church in the middle of. Because if you think about it, if he could capture the church in the middle of it and usher it in, then he could break God's word and win. And that wasn't going to happen yet. There's an anointing still on this world with the church still here. But if you just look at some, and this is why after we finish Hebrews, we're going to spend two or three weeks going through prophecy, where are we and why, and just look at, we talked about two weeks ago, the red heifers. They've been, they have kosher red heifers in Israel right now to sanctify the next temple. They were raised in Texas. A funny, kind of funny story, a, a friend of mine has a connection to the rancher that actually sold those five red heifers to Israel. And, <laughs> and it's, it, I don't know that I would want to be that rancher that, that stepped up and provided what the last piece that's needed to usher in the Antichrist temple, but, uh, but he did it. And so, you know, I guess uh, good for him. So, <laughs> so, but everything the Bible has foretold for thousands and thousands of years, you can see it setting up little by little if you are sensitive to it. And so there will come a time that all of this is in place that the Lord calls us home and it's all ready for the rise of the Antichrist to step in, take it over and usher in this one world system. One of the things, if, you, if you're sensitive to it in the Bible, the, the final kingdom, it's actually 10 kingdoms. The world's divided into 10 regions from the book of Daniel and the Antichrist rises out of that. I was shocked actually to realize in World War II, in the middle of it, the, the globalists, the Nazis and others around the world that were trying to usher this in, this one world system at that time, had maps dividing the world into 10 regions. You know, where do they get those ideas from? It's almost like they're just reading the Bible and knowing, okay, this is what I've got to do next. It's, it's kind of comical, but we're going to look at all of that when we get through Hebrews. Because I, if you're sensitive to it when you're studying the word of God, then it should give you a sense of urgency to live for Christ now because our time is short. If it doesn't happen in our lifetime, even if it doesn't happen in our lifetime, 
you and I don't have that many years left on this earth to impact an eternal kingdom. Your place in the millennium, it doesn't just, in the, uh, the forever kingdom, the new city, the new Jerusalem, it doesn't just last 25, 40 years. It lasts forever. We're talking millions and millions and millions of years. This is not a 40-year inheritance that you get. It's forever. And so take your time and, and take your walk serious with the Lord. Uh, in Proverbs, the Lord says, remember to count the days, number the days. So just think about that. If you took 52 weeks a year times whatever, pick a number, 40 years. You've got 2,000 weekends left, roughly, you know, in your life. Just think about that. When you really put numbers to it, it kind of puts some, wow, there's some meat there, some teeth you can <laughs> seek into to know time is short. And you know time is short because that unshakable kingdom is approaching in Hebrews 12. See that you refuse not him that speaketh, for if they escaped, not who refused him that spake on earth, speaking of Jesus, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he hath promised, saying, yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And this word, remember from Isaiah, that's what God's gonna do during the tribulation. He not only shakes the earth again, but heaven. And this word yet once more signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken. And if you look at a lot of what happened in 2020, again, a lot was shaken. A lot was torn down that, that frankly the church was holding in too much value. You know, movies, entertainment, sports, uh, careers, money, all of that God shook to take down temporarily to give you and I a renewed focus on looking for and living for him. And he was trying to get our attention. And this word yet once more signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken as of things that are made that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Wherefore we receive a kingdom which cannot be moved. Let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear for our God is a consuming fire. Kind of like that song that Chris and Hayden sang this morning with Burn. So that unshakable kingdom, if you remember Nebuchadnezzar's dream with the statue, the head of gold, then silver, then bronze, then iron, then iron mixed with clay, those were the five Gentile kingdoms from Nebuchadnezzar on that would rule the earth. There was Babylon, which was conquered by Persia, which was conquered by Greece, which was conquered by Rome, and then shattered. Remember, Rome had two legs, and it was the Western and the Eastern Empire. The feet with 10 toes was the iron mixed with clay, which is that final Antichrist kingdom, and the 10 toes representing the 10 kings. And if you remember Daniel's interpretation of it, the stone cut without hands had to come and physically strike the feet, the Antichrist kingdom. And that stone, you can read Daniel 2, 44 and 45, where God interprets that dream of Nebuchadnezzar, where the stone cut without hands strikes and shatters the Antichrist kingdom and grows to a kingdom that fills the earth. That's the millennium. And that's what Jesus does when he returns in Revelation 19, and we are with him. It's a literal physical kingdom. And until that time, until he calls us home, you and I have a responsibility to be watching. 
to be watching for what is going on, what is rising on the horizon in this world, and to pay attention to it through a biblical prophetic grid so that God didn't write all of this down so you and I would be surprised by what's happening. He wrote it down so that we would know it, we would know how to act as a result of it. That, okay, you see the rise of you know, trying to usher in a one-world government, praise God, that's exactly what the Lord said had to happen before we went home. So the more you see, the more you know you're closer. And all we know is that we have to be removed before the Antichrist can be revealed from Second Thessalonians. But there's a crown for those that are watching in Second Timothy 4.8. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. Now, If you pay attention to those five crowns in the New Testament, each one is tied to doing something. And I don't think it's an all-inclusive list. God is giving you a hint that here's a reward for you, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all of them that also love his appearing. So if if you are watching for Jesus, then there's a crown laid up for you. If you love the, his appearing in the rapture, you have a crown of righteousness waiting for you on the other side of this. And in Revelation 4 and 5, we're gonna go into the throne room of the universe and cast all of those crowns at the feet of Jesus because he did it all. And you wanna have a lot of those crowns to throw. So be watchful. It's all over the Bible. Jesus Jesus implored us to be watching. Matthew 24, watch therefore. Matthew 25, Mark 13, take heed and watch and pray. Luke 21, watch ye therefore. Mark 13, and what I say unto you, I say unto all, watch. And you've got to rightly divide the return of Christ to take us home and the return of Christ in power when he steps foot on the earth. Two totally different events. One, we meet him in the air. One, we are with him when he returns in power. So the, the call for all of us is to get into the word of God by, by building our faith because faith is the sword of the spirit and it's the shield of faith in the Ephesians armor, right? You need the sword as an offensive weapon, but the word is also your defense. And so build your faith. It's the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And it's important because without it, it's impossible to please God. And how do you get it? Romans 10, 17 Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. And you need to do it daily from Acts 17, 11. And so if you're here, if you're watching this online, if you don't know Jesus and you're not born again, it is so simple. Romans 10, 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. It is that simple. You will instantaneously be born again and you will never be the same because you can then have the, the opportunity to walk in total freedom of anything that had chained you in your life before. Any addiction, any sin, anything in your life, you then have the authority to conquer it because you have the Holy Spirit. We'll close in prayer. Lord, I thank you so much for this time together. God, thank you for your call You're called to equip your people with the word of God. Lord, we thank you so much for New City Church, for all of the families 
Lord, all of those families that watch us online around the world, we thank you for each and every one of them. They are so precious. We love them. We are praying for them. And God, we pray that you would place a hedge of protection around everyone traveling back from fall break, that they return safely and energized for this week ahead. God, we pray that you would speak to every one of us this week in such a special way. God, as we spend time with you, speak to us and confirm your call in our lives, Lord. In Jesus' name, we thank you again for this time in Hebrews 11. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.